Hello and welcome to More Conversations with the Morehouse Andrew Young Center. My name is Stephen Seymour. I'm a senior physics major from Nassau, the Bahamas. And today we'll be talking to Christopher Huntley. Christopher thrives at the intersection of politics and communications, weaving pop culture, storytelling, and social justice together to transform complex policy issues into relatable stories. Driven by a passion for inspiring and persuading audiences, he has partnered with some of the nation's foremost political minds to develop narrative strategies in the fight for social, racial, and economic justice. Christopher began his career working in the communications office of then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. After Senator Reid's retirement, Christopher served as speechwriter speech and deputy press secretary for Reverend Leah D. Daughtry. CEO of the 2016 Democratic National Convention Committee. Subsequently, he joined Secretary Clinton's 2016 presidential bid as millennial, as millennial media director. In the wake of Donald Trump's election, Christopher returned to DC as communications director for Congresswoman Barbara Lee, where he helped, the, where he helped congressional leaders give voice to the growing progressive resistance to the Trump administration. In 2017, Christopher joined the office of Senator Elizabeth Warren, where he worked on speech writing, speech delivery, op-eds, and message strategy. After Warren's successful 2018 re-election campaign, Christopher became senior speechwriter for the Senator's official 2020 presidential campaign, working to connect voters to the movement for big structural change. He recently joined Blue State as VP of Strategic Communications. Christopher graduated from Plattsburgh State University in New York with a, with a BS in public relations. He currently lives in DC. Christopher, quite an extensive background there. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks, man. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's really great to talk with you. Yeah. So, you know, your background, you have an extensive background in, you know, the political communications area and working with the political press. So I actually want to talk to you about, you know, in in this growing world of, you know, social media being a part of the political process, you know, what are some of the challenges that you face with, you know, creating political messaging for your candidates? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the uh, the most the the most challenging thing to in crafting messages that break through is just breaking through, right? I think we're so inundated with so many messages, like you said, social media so many different ways for people to receive information that it's incumbent upon communications professionals, right? Like to, de to develop clear, concise messages that both meet the moment, but that can cut through some of that noise. And to do that, right, you need to have an, a keen understanding of who your audience is, right? Like you need to understand who you're talking to, speak and like understanding the minds and the hearts that you're trying to move. And that can be difficult sometimes when, you know, there are so many different viewpoints and so many different nuances and angles to discussions whereas you know before social media and before social media became so uh vitally important to our lives like in the age of covid because everybody's stuck in front of their screens right there was some space and time to develop a narrative but everything is so instant now that you almost have to uh develop in real time so it's challenging and um i think communication professionals in general are looking um for new ways to figure out how to like say hey we need that space so that we can get it right because uh, you know you can you can be right and you can be loud or you can you know you can actually you know get things done correctly. So I think that it's 
It's just about a sensory overload and being able to take that pause, but at the same time, understanding that in order to communicate effectively, you have to be a part of the ongoing conversation for whatever issue, organization, cause that you're uh, called on to communicate for. Definitely, and especially this past summer, we've seen a lot of that with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement due to the death of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And we've seen a shift in you know, messaging from our politicians and also even corporations on what was which on what is currently or what was viewed as political issues. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you more about you know how is the image of the politician changing, um, you know, in this in this life where we have things where they move play by play. How is that? How's the image of the politician changing, and how are politicians adjusting to find some ways to control their image on these platforms? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I think. There's a couple of buckets, right? Like the first is that there has been this emergence and maybe the last like 10, 15, 20 years. But if you go back, you know, even as far as like Reagan, like this idea of the celebrity politician, right? Like you're, you want your president to be that inspirational figure, that uplifting, you know, rhetorically sound person that can actually, um, that can actually, you know, move your heart, move your mind, be the consoler in chief be the commander in chief, but do it in a performative way. So the presidency itself, right? Just that has been celebritized. But I think that politicians in general, right? Like so the celebrity politician is a real, real thing. And I think we, what we're seeing now are people um, and politicians running for office on that, just on the, the surface level of that, right? Like I can talk, I can, you know, I can create video, I can make, you know, viral conversations. But at the end of the day, what matters for people are the policies and the plans that are actually going to impact folks. But I think what happens and has been happening is that we get so caught up in the celebrity of the politician that we actually don't really do the due diligence to uh, check into their policies, look into their plans. And I think that over time, you know, that's it's self-correcting, but we have to do the work to actually understand who it is that we are supporting, not just because they sound good or they look good, but because they are what's best for our communities, for our families, for our country. And I think particularly as black voters, we have an even more, you know, even a more pronounced responsibility because we know that the systems that we exist in were never actually designed to help us. So it's very easy for someone to come and say on on the face of a thing that like, hey, this is what I want to do for the black community. Okay, follow it up with your plans and your policies. Uh, so that's one piece. But back to what you said about this summer, I think that what we saw was a radical shift, um, at least with Democrats um, and, you know, folks, uh, not even just Democrats. You said it right. Like there are corporations and people and all kinds of organizations are trying to understand how to deal with this, the racial reckoning in this moment. And I think what I appreciated the most was how quickly the the norm, it, it, it came, it became normal for companies and causes and organizations and you know, things like Uncle Ben's who people been trying to address for for decades, right? For accountability to be the standard very quickly. Um, and I hate that it that you know that has fallen as it continues to throughout history on black and brown lives, but it was refreshing to see how quickly all of the different axes shifted to accountability. I'll just give you one example. Uh, I was at the time or earlier in the earlier in the year, I was still um like on the official campaign staff 
for Elizabeth Warren went on to the political side after the primary ended. And, you know, uh, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, that whole, the, 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 it was so compact. And I remember we reached a fever picture. We had to decide what should she do, right? Would it be a speech? COVID had hit, couldn't really do that. Would it be a statement? That didn't go far enough. So we, you know, sat together, came together, um, and worked with her on a video that was really compelling. And for me, the win in the video was not only naming that, you know, George should be alive, uh, Breonna Taylor should be alive, Ahmaud Arbery should be alive. All of that stuff at the top makes a lot of sense. Reform for our criminal justice system. We know what we need to do. But towards the end, she starts to talk about what the responsibility she has as a white woman and white people have to talk to each other about these uh, situations and what the systemic racism that underpins it. But then she goes further to say, like, it's not enough to be an ally, right? We have to be actively anti-racist. And that kind of language, right, would have taken a long time, even like five years ago. But now most politicians are, especially white allies, are trying to say, hey, how can we show up? What can we do? What's the education? Now, there's a long way we got to go. And I think there's a lot of people who are doing things that are performative. But I, I am encouraged that uh, accountability is becoming kind of like the, the knee-jerk reaction for some people. Like, well, we, at the very least, we have to be held accountable. That's performative, but that is even progress. Yeah, definitely. You you hit on a lot there. And I think, you know, looking at companies and politicians, like as a young person, you want to be able to look at um, these perceived leaders in your world and be able to see if they actually care about the things that affect you, whether you're a minority or not, right? If you're not within, if you're in a majority group, you know, you also want to find ways to be a part of the solution, but still things are polarized, right? Yeah. Like, even though we had all this, you know, rhetoric over the summer, still things are polarized. Still people are saying things like, oh, well, you know, why they call it Black Lives Matter? Don't all lives matter? Yeah. You know, there's so many other issues that, you know, people people look at what they see on social media. They take it at face value and maybe no one's there to educate them. Or as you mentioned about politicians, maybe sometimes in their communication of whatever their policies are, you know, there's blatant lies there right and we see time and time again right we, through fake news on twitter and you know on facebook things like that so how does that how does that really affect you know communicating and how does that how does that affect political communications you know when there's so many one you have polarized voices and then two you have just really loud voices that are just throwing chaos in the mix like how do you how do you how do you deal with that I mean, it's challenging, right? Like, and this is what I was saying before about breaking through, but just from a purely press perspective, I think the most challenging thing that I've noticed in last like five, six years has been the, oh, I mean, you spend so much of your time fact checking and providing context and background because it's so folks and, and not all journalists, like obviously, right? Like I think like there are a lot of people who really go after the story and do the due diligence, but particularly at the upper echelons of political journalism, it's about like doing a clicky thing, breaking the news, getting the headline. And like, sometimes you can have a, a headline that's like, that is not even what your story's about. <laughs> and the story's good, but the headline has to break through the noise, right? So it has to make it seem as if there's a villain or there's a, you know, there's, there's very little space for nuance. And I mean, that's the industry, but I think that, you know, it's just really being clear about context and defining, I mean, there are certain things that are just true. You know, like no matter what you, what side you are leaning on politically, there's just truth. And I think that 
a lot of times we don't really, uh, I think the, the, the definition of truth has been constantly shifting and you introduce, you know, uh, an entire administration, an entire ecosystem. Um, I mean, you know, there have always been, people have been lying for a long time, you know, especially on black and brown folks. I, I almost said something else, but like people have been lying forever. But there's, an, there's an, a whole ecosystem now where it's okay to just flat out lie, right? Like, and it comes from the highest office, the president of the United States, just flat out lies. His advisors lie. And so when you are the person that's pushing back on those lies and that's your constant job, and it, it just makes it more difficult to try and broaden the argument, to try and um, get some nuance in there, because you're just trying to get people to acknowledge the truth. Like, hey, climate change exists, right? Like, that is a thing that's directly connected to the health and the outcomes of black and brown people, right? Like, how do I get into a conversation with you about environmental justice when you won't even acknowledge that, like, the planet is warming? Like, it's, so it's just difficult, but I think that uh, we are, we, I hope in this election, we are gonna see the, you know, complete repudiation of that model that we've been under under the last four years. And I think that folks are, particularly with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, I think there's gonna be an opportunity to do a level set with folks um, to see, you know, how we get ourselves out of this mess. Because until we stop the bleeding, right, like there will be no way to really start healing. Mm, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's loaded with a lot of great points there. Um, and I mean, you know, pivoting to now the presidential election, uh, there's a, there, it can be said that there's a lot of parallels between this election and the 2000 election with Bush and Gore. Um, I wanted to know your perspectives on that, uh, especially given that right now we have a lot of things with, you know, mail-in ballots, early voting, um, and things of that sort. And there's been a lot of talk on both sides. Um, I just wanted to get from a historical reference, you know, how, how do you see this election maybe in the context of 2000, where you know, right now we have uh, Judge Barrett, you know, expected to be, you know, confirmed into the Supreme Court, right? right? And there might be cases that are open about maybe disputing, you know, voting documents. So what are some of your views on what's currently going on that can actually maybe like sway the election either way? Yeah. I mean, like the, the, the thing about, you know, 2000 was, it was, I mean, it was wild, right? Like I was also 10, but still knowing it, right? It was, it was wild, but at the same time, there was still, there there were levels of accountability that I think that no longer exists, right? Like I think that was, I mean, 2000 was about, obviously voter suppression, obviously they were, you know, Republicans were trying to steal the election, obviously all those frameworks that have been, you know, deeply woven into our electoral system um, in order to dif disenfranchise black and brown voters, cut our voices out like that is was completely at the core of it but at the same time you didn't have the actual president of the united states and the entire party like just literally like messaging around voter voter fraud right that was like about counting and machine and like you know hanging cads like all of those different things in addition to other sources but this is now like you have the president of the united states like outright saying that he's not willing to accept the results of the election or the peaceful transfer of power. Like what, like what, what, what do you mean? Like this, is, this has never happened before. And so I think in a lot of ways, we have reached a space that's completely unprecedented. I don't think there's ever been a time like this in our democracy. I don't think there's ever been a time where you've had such a brazen uh, power grab that's happening across the board. And I think that, you know, it's very clear. I mean, even, you know, even if you didn't watch the uh, Supreme Court 
hearings with Amy Coney Barrett to, you know, directly very, very closely. Because like, honestly, that process shouldn't even be happening. And it is frustrating. And it's one thing after another. But in that, in the, in the hearings, they asked her multiple times about the peaceful, like democratic norm institution, like peaceful transfer of power. What, where, where do you stand on it? She wouldn't do it because it's a political appointment. And that's the, that's the challenge. And that's where we're, that's where we're at now. We have to think about, okay, how do we reform our court system that has been so politicized, right? That there's not even in the space for justice or any kind of actual level of truth. It's just all right-wing extremists bought and paid for by corporations, wealthy and well-connected. That's not the will of the people. So, um, it, it, you know, I think there are, there are some parallels, but in a lot of ways, we are in uncharted territory. It's like we are in Lovecraft country and we went back into some kind of crazy portal and we don't have Hippolyta. <laughs> yeah, and I think now more than ever uh, with the different voting campaigns going on, I guess you can say right now we're working, you know, to make sure that people get out there and vote. Because um, there's a lot at stake here, right? Like you said, we're in uncharted territory. We don't know what happens next? You know, this is a very fragile moment in history where, you know, things things can tip in either direction. So I actually want to talk to you more about just voting in general. Um, you know, uh, we, the presidential elections get a lot of press because, you know, it's the president. But there are, you know, local elections for senators and House of Representatives, and people typically kind of ignore those. Um, one of the things that uh, one, one term that you can kind of group some of these people into is the inconsistent voter, where people might, you know, decide to register to vote and they either decide, oh, well, you know, I, I decided that maybe voting isn't the right uh, choice for me right now. Uh, what do you think would be something or what do you think is a good strategy to really reach out to people like that that might not feel like their vote matters? Because, you know, in 2016, we had that issue where a lot of people just didn't vote because they didn't feel like their vote mattered, right? Even if they might have registered. So how, what sort of messaging do you think is needed to actually, you know, restore this sense of agency in the vote? Yeah. I mean, I think that it is a ongoing conversation, particularly, you know, with younger voters and with people who have seen a system that wasn't designed or built to work for us, constantly weaponized against us. But I think that, you know, the one thing that we try to focus on and, you know, over at Blue State or whether it was um, Warren Democrats running, you know, when I was working for Elizabeth Warren, is to show people that democracy does actually work, right? Like there, it, there are times that it does, it can actually work. You have to show people connection to government and policy and politics in their lives, even at the local level, right? Your alderman, your city councilman, your, these people make decisions that impact your life every single day. The roads that you drive on, right? Like the timing and the, you know, like the, the, your, the, the timing of businesses opening and closing, like the ability to be able to open or start a business based on small business grants, et cetera, or even just basic like understanding of how school boards, right? Impact the learning for our kids and our future. There is no way that you can say, right, that your vote does not have power if you don't actually exercise it, right? There, and I think there's a lot of times people think, oh, you know, it's a waste of time. It's not something that's going to make change. If everybody thought that throughout history, where would we be, 
right? And then I think as black and brown folks, we don't have the luxury of not voting. We don't have the luxury of leaving the decisions that are made by the politicians and folks who, you know, uh, to rig the rules and write the levers of power. We can't, because you know why? At the end of the day, we are always gonna be the ones that are left out. So if anything, for an accountability measure, for people to know, at the very least, you can only go bust so far because folks are engaged, right? And so I think it's just about showing that engagement, teaching people how to see the way that government shows up in their lives on everything from their health care to their taxes to uh, the freedom that they have, um, even on like social media, what kind of laws exist that allow these companies to like take all your data and do what with it? Sell it back to you in some weird kind of way and weaponize it. So I think it's just about like making that connective tissue to people about how government is impacting every aspect of their life, but then also showing that it can be a powerful force for good. Saving the Affordable Care Act with one vote, that was because of democratic pressure, because we had Democrats elected up and down the ballot. We didn't win in the Senate, right? Like we didn't have the control, but because of enough people were willing to engage in the process, there was some change made. Right, and I think, you know, we should look at voting, especially younger voters, we should look at voting as a lifelong thing. You know, a lot of people say that, oh, well, I'm not really into politics like that. But as you mentioned, politics is into you, right? Sure. Definitely a part of your entire life. So, I mean, uh, you know, Christopher, you're a very, you're a very impressive individual, right? Oh, Especially you. given all that you've accomplished, all that you've been a part of at such a young age. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people from coming from like your same background, like young black kids that looking at how can we be a part of that change, right? Maybe I don't want to be president or maybe I don't want to run for office. Maybe, but you know, I'm really good. I, I'm a very good communicator or I'm good at music or whatever the case might be. Cause we see activism in all different forms. So I just wanted to, you know, in seeing that you're such a astounding individual, I wanted to kind of get your perspective on, you know, for people that are watching this right now, what are some, what are some uh, things that you would have to say to them about finding ways to get involved that are untraditional? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think that, you know, the, the first thing I would say is to just show up how you show up, right? I think sometimes people get intimidated by politics, activism, or organizing because it's like, I'm not a firebrand, you know, I'm not willing to run out there in the streets and do one thing, or I, you know, I can't really get pithy on Twitter and like get followers. But no, you can share what you believe with your family, your friends, and your sphere of influence, right? So like show up in that space and show up ready to listen and to learn, but also to speak. And I think that in a lot of ways, the, the listening and the learning has taken a back seat to all of the outspoken people who are so loud. And change is, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for change to be abrupt, for it to be loud, for it to be abrasive. But the kind of change that usually like makes the most impact is that slow and steady change over time. It's the, it's the change that makes, that shifts minds and hearts and uh, shifts uh, value systems, right? And that's through connecting with one another and showing up on a basic human level. Um, and so I think, you know, there's that, but then also get involved locally. I think the one way for people to learn how outrageous, how outraging the lack of uh, political sensitivity can be when it comes to things that actually impact your life is see it in real time. See how some of these council meetings go where you show up there, there's only like three people and they're making decisions for the entire county, right? Like these older people or these folks who are out of touch or people who have been in positions for a long time, get a part of the process. Um, but then at the very least, I think the last thing that you should really do is to think about the kind of future you wanna live in 
and figure out how you can be a part of that. If you can, if you're a designer, right, like offer to, you know, do some graphics for some folks or, you know, put some stuff out on social media that clarify things that are confusing. If you are a singer, right, like be a part of, uh, you know, making music that helps to, you know, fuel the movement or to soothe folks or to be some solve when things are crazy. If you are a type of person who's a poet, write poetry, you know, do it, show up how you show up. And you can find different ways to make that translate into a professional setting. I mean, I have a background in theater and all these different things. And I, at one point, thought I was going to, you know, be on Broadway doing the thing. And that didn't really work out. But what I did was I took the skills and the talents that I did have, right? Like learning how to connect with people, moving hearts and minds, audience, understanding an audience, and taking that and moved it to a different platform. So I, now, I, now what do I do? I help politicians like move hearts and minds. I help connect stories and, you know, make, uh, you know, narratives that help uh, uh, people move hearts and minds. And that's just because that's one of my gifts. So show up how you will, show up how you are, do it, do what is most authentic to you. But at the, at the very least, just do something, just do something. That's awesome. And you're definitely an embodiment of your message, which I think is important. So, yeah, you know, Christopher, it's been great talking to you. Uh, This has been Morehouse, more conversations with the Andrew Young Center. My name is Steven. This has been Christopher Huntley. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for tuning in on whichever platform you're listening from. All right. Thanks.